Welcome to the Infertility Feelings Podcast. I am Jesse Brown, sitting next to Doug Brown, but we are not the stars of this podcast. Are you saying that I'm not the main event of this Sorry podcast? to make am your I, feelings. Am I ever the main event of a podcast? <laughs> now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. Um, no, we are so excited today to have our friend Avon Kane on the Woo. podcast. Woohoo! And to just listen to her unique story. Um, and yeah, I think it's going to be really, really great. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Let me just spend the next hour talking about how great Avon is before <laughs> we get started. I can't do an hour, but maybe a few minutes. Avon. Oh, I'm here for that. Yeah. <laughs> you are an alumni of our program. We met you through a unique creative process groups. But uh, since then, we've become friends and you are a wonderful person. And not only that, you can learn a lot about Avon in the very near future. She has currently written a book, a memoir. They're shopping publishers. If you're a publishing house and you're listening to this, call her up. I mean, what are you doing? You can email me at jessieuniquelynated.org and I will send. The book is called Fallow Ground and it's a memoir of your experience with infertility in life, in your development, in your growth. If you have dealt with infertility, you're going to want to read this. You'll know when it comes out. We'll talk about it and make sure that you know all the information. Haven is here today to share her experience with us about what it was like to go through this crazy life-changing process. And we're going to touch on today this topic of things not working out. Is that the best way to talk about things? Is that the best way to talk about infertility? Things didn't work out. I know certainly in our relationship and in our experience with infertility, I, we said that all the time. Ah, it's not working out. Yeah. That treatment didn't work out. That, those, that, that medicine, it didn't work. It didn't work out. Um, and I think that's that, that language is all over the world of infertility. That treatment plan didn't work out. Our plans didn't work out. In your story, it's so sad to say this, but there's it's filled with things not working out. Um, and we're going to talk about that. And are you at a place now where you feel like, oh, my life didn't work out? Spoiler alert, Avon is an amazing individual. You're a vice president, not of the country yet. <laughs> Yet, yet of a of a large organization, um, and you've just you you said when we first just joined this call that you're that you feel like you're thriving. I mean, maybe I'm paraphrasing there, but that you are you have come to a place where you're like, I'm digging this, I'm liking this. How is that possible after you hear of all these things not working out? That's what we're going to talk about and dig into today. So, without further ado, Avon. <laughs> Welcome back to the Infertility Feelings Podcast, your place to process, cry, and laugh about infertility. We are so happy to have you here, and we really hope you enjoy today's conversation. To be able to understand how you got to this point of peace, I would say, or it working out in your life, we got to go back. And so, Avon, we would love to hear just your start of entering the infertility world and what that felt like. Um, yeah. So just take us back to kind of where it all began. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me be here. It just means so much. I have been a huge fan of your podcast for so long and being able to be a part of your process groups was absolutely instrumental in me being able to be here and be the human I am today. So lots of kudos to you guys. You've been a huge (laughs) part of my journey and, um, and really, the thing that drew me to you guys is the fact that 
your story didn't have that perfect, tidy ending either, you know, because you guys went through infertility, you did treatments. And at the end of the day, you weren't able to have biological children. And there was a time in my journey where I really wanted to find people like you because I wasn't hearing those stories. You know, often it's just a a matter of you start doing trying to have a baby, you start fertility treatments. And it's just kind of a matter of like, well, this is terrible, but someday magically, if I can just hang on through it, it's going to work out. And I think at the beginning, that is a hopeful feeling. And then as time passes, it becomes a very stressful feeling because there is no guarantee that it's going to work out. And at some point in the journey, you ask yourself, well, what do do I do then? There's no guidebook for what to do if it doesn't work out. So that was something that really made me so very thankful for you guys. And in turn is something that I'm hoping I can bring out into the world also um, through the work that I'm doing is that, you know, a no answer, like you said, doesn't necessarily mean a a no for you as a person. So to kind of take you guys back, you know, my story began as a lot of stories do with, I had just gotten married and I got married a little bit later. Uh, It was a second marriage. And so my, my first marriage was very brief. We were young when we got married. It just seemed as time passed, we weren't heading in the right direction. So I got married to my husband now when I was 37. And, you know, I'd always kind of had in the back of my brain that I wanted to have children. And then obviously the time sort of hadn't ever worked out, but then suddenly here I am at age 37 getting married. And although I had always wanted children, it had always been sort of an abstract concept of wanting kids, you know, five Mm. years from now, et cetera, et cetera. No matter how old I got, it continued to be five years from now. It moved with you. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah, Instead of moving, moving closer, harder. it kept moving farther apart. It just, yeah, it just kept being five years, you know, but but then here I am at age 37 and it was suddenly go time, right? Because I was already considered a geriatric pregnancy at the moment that we started. And I knew right. that I wanted to have children with my husband. So essentially we started trying right on our honeymoon and we went to a doctor who gave us some bad advice, who basically said, try for 12 months. And if it doesn't work out, come back and see me. You know, in the years since we have realized that that was bad advice at age 37, most doctors say six months, but you know, I think at the time I didn't really want to question that because I didn't want to face the fact that I could have an issue. Um, I had really no reason to think I would have a fertility issue, although my sister had had some fertility issues. And so I had sort of watched her from a distance, always kind of in the back of my brain. I had had that as a abstract concern, but again, you don't want to sort of look at it too closely because you don't want to yeah. realize it. Yeah. Um, can but I anyway, you, can I ask you in those, in that first year of trying, were, did, is that where you entered into, or had, did you enter into a feeling of, I want this to work. It's not working. I want this to work. It's not working for, for us. That's how that 12 months was, was, you know, you get that black and white thinking like, okay, this is the month. It wasn't this month. This is the month. And and you almost start to develop it there. Is that what was happening for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was interesting because when my husband and I first got married, you know, and having conversations about the prospect of having children, we both wanted kids. But as we talked about it, you know, abstractly, we said, well, you know, if it didn't work out, I think it'd be okay. We could travel, we could do whatever. So, you know, I think going into it, we were pretty open-minded with, you know, well, 50, 50, 60, 40, 80, 20. But as you mentioned, every month that passed that the tickers ticked a little bit closer toward really wanting to have kids. And the other thing that I asked myself, you know, because I wanted to 
set out with an open mind and an open heart was really was the apathy that I was feeling truly that I didn't care or was it that I cared so much that I didn't want to admit how much I cared <laughs> yes. or else I would be setting myself up for even further disappointment. So, you know, it was kind of hard to rectify exactly where the true feelings were under there because you have so many walls yeah. of just defense mechanisms to prevent yourself from being hurt. But, you know, in the spirit of wanting to be open-minded, I, I very quickly tried to embrace it. And as every single month passed, you know, I, every single no just told me even more how I wanted it, you know, and, and I would every single month, every single month that would just compound. And I think with that was a growing sense of panic, but also again, not wanting to look too closely at the panic, because if I did, then I would maybe have to admit that there was something happening and better to just keep my head up, you know, and, and sort of just hope for the best and try to be positive. Cause that's what you're told you to yep. do. Be positive, so relax, that, be positive. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that first year passed very much in sort of a, a weird, um, mixture of, compounding grief, but also a, a sense of denial too. Yeah, that's good. Um, I wanted to ask you, cause obviously we know, <laughs> I know you, um, just not even from our process groups, but outside our process groups. And we talk a lot about the Enneagram and you are a three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever. I just am curious. And I would, I would go on a limb and say you're type A. Probably. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, Type A. <laughs> How was that in that time too? I, I was just, I was going into that picture and that story that you were just saying and thinking about that part and a lot of type A people or threes or whatever, it's like I achieve and then I get, I get what I want. It's like, was that going on too in the back of your mind of just like, Oh no, like I can't achieve this. I can't work harder at it or do it better. Was that going on too? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I also um, really appreciate it. I know a while back, you guys actually did a whole podcast about how the Enneagram impacts infertility. Yeah. And in listening to your podcast, I was so impressed with it. And, and more so, I was thinking it was interesting because really any of the nine Enneagram types, infertility is the worst thing yeah. that could possibly happen to them 100%. But like for completely different ways, completely right? Different reasons, yeah. And, and for an Enneagram three, as you mentioned, it's the achiever. And so this is the person that believes that their worth is kind of dependent on their output. You know, so these are your sort of, as you mentioned, it's your class A people, it's your teacher's pet people, it's your honor students. It's the, you know, the folks that are the first to sign up to volunteer here and do this and do that. Because, you know, again, it's like, if I can do good things, that means I'm a good person who is worthy of love, right? Which is ultimately what the Enneagram is all about. And so, yeah, infertility is an absolute disaster for a person who wants to achieve, wants to do the right thing and not just do right for, you know, what you want, but also for what society feels that you should be doing for what you want to do for your partner. Obviously a big part of the whole struggle was I didn't want to fail my partner because failing somebody is the worst possible thing that I could even consider. And being a person who typically has been able to sort of put my head down and accomplish almost anything I've wanted to do to be presented with something that was truly outside of my sphere of control was very debilitating. It was incredibly destabilizing. Yeah. And did you feel it even back then, even in the months of just trying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure it grew over time. Oh, it absolutely compounded over time. But even when it was happening, you know, because you think if you do the things you're supposed to do, 
it'll work out. So if you have a good diet, if you take the vitamins, if you get massages, if you do Reiki, if you do the power of positive thinking, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, it'll work. And so when it didn't work, rather than saying this is something outside of my control, I would say, what could I do better next time? How am I failing and how can I fix that? Which again is pretty much setting yourself up for the worst possible scenario you could imagine. Yeah. 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 Because those compound and you start to feel like a failure, you know, in in your identity, almost my identity is wrapped up in what I'm able to do. I'm not able to do this. Therefore I'm not able to be, I'm like, I'm a failure to the core, which is a scary, which is a scary feeling because how do you know, most people go through infertility. I feel like young, you know, and I, I consider thirties, forties, late forties, fifties. I mean, that's young. Like you start to go like, I have a lot of life after this. How do I move on after something that's so groundbreaking? Like that just ruins my sense of self and identity and and how I operate. You know, I can, could not accomplish this. Therefore I, I can't accomplish anything, you know? And how do you, that's really, that's why I'm saying this idea of it not working out. And we even, we've even said it a couple of times, even in this conversation, like, oh, it didn't work out. If that starts to become part of your identity, like I didn't work out, how do you overcome that? And obviously that's where we're going. But do you, did you feel like after those 12 months, this was a season of things not working out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so hard because, you know, for something so fundamentally easy for other people to be so impossibly hard for you was really yeah. something that was difficult for me to swallow. You know, looking around at all of the people who get pregnant and don't want to get pregnant and, yeah. you know, all the people who um, accidentally get pregnant and all the people who, you know, get pregnant and then they're really upset when they get pregnant, you know, and to just be like, this is so, this is like breathing. And the fact that I can't even do this very basic task that all of these humans are doing on accident, you know, it just really, it really hurt a lot. And then to also sort of feel that you're watching everybody around you's life move on without you. You know, people are getting pregnant, people are having babies, you're going to baby showers, you're going to, you know, gender reveal parties, you're seeing everybody around you get to have this thing and you're trying to be open-minded and happy for them. But, you know, you start to have these poisonous feelings of why not me too? And that's a really hard feeling and a hard place to be. And what does that, yeah, what does that feel like when you say poisoning feeling? Describe that more. It's just... (sighs) you feel yourself thinking and feeling things that you have so much shame around, Mm -hmm. you know, where you start judging whether or not you think other people deserve to be pregnant. And you look at people's choices and you say, well, they did X, Y, Z and I didn't. So why do they get to be happy? And I don't, you know, and you hear yourself thinking these things and you say, this is not who I am. You know, at, at my core, I am not a person who is trying to compete with other people who thinks I'm better than other people or who would wish other people sadness, but it's, it becomes a desperation after a while. And you hear yourself thinking, and in some points you think to yourself, like, who is this? I don't even know this person who's speaking totally. anymore because you're in so much pain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there was moments where you're like, I would never say this in my life, but you you look at someone and you're like, I'm a way better parent. I would be a way better parent than that guy. And you're like, whoa, where did that? That's dark, you know? Yeah. I never, never previously looked at someone and said, I'm way better than that person. But this, you get to a place of 
almost like inequality of experience where you're like something feels locked away from you and feels like you know you're being shut out of this thing that feels very natural for everyone and then you you do go to a dark place where you look at you know you go to like you know a lovely place and you're just sitting around and be like these idiots i'm how, like <laughs> how come how come this horrible parent who's yelling at their kid gets to be a parent and I can't even, you know, get pregnant or something like that. Yeah. And you're like, 100%. His thoughts are and so then, odd. Yeah. And then you hear yourself thinking those thoughts and then you feel ashamed of yourself for thinking those thoughts. So now not only do you feel the thought, but you feel guilty about feeling the thought, it's which makes you feel even worse. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so the whole thing just really spins out of control very quickly before you know it. And it takes you to a pretty dark part of your psyche that you don't tend to visit otherwise. Yeah. And maybe this is a lighthearted example, but this was a real thing for me. And I'm really glad that you brought, you brought up that point of like, it changed who I normally is or are, you know, like I'm normally a pretty happy person. I'm pretty like happy for everyone. And this will probably age me, but I don't even care. Teen mom was super popular when we were trying to get pregnant. And the like the like TM no, no, MTV. No, MTV show, right? Yes. If it ages me, I don't Teen care. Mom. I don't care. Um, but so going to the grocery store was really anxiety provoking for me because that's where all the tabloids would be about. And then it's so true. It's like, I would go, I hate teenagers. I've always hated teenagers. I hate young people. They all annoy me. And I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. Like, no, I don't. Who are you? Yeah. Who am I? Like, and that's just like a, like a petty, kind of a petty example, but it's yeah. like, even that something even so not even that big of a deal. It's like, can feel assaulting and feel like it puts you into a place of someone that's, that you're not really who you are. So moving forward in your story, you, a, a year goes by from there. Are you thinking, okay, we want to double down and make this thing that, that we're thinking about a reality. You had talked about earlier that you, you know, you weren't from the very beginning of your relationship, like this has to happen. This is the key cornerstone of what we're going to do. But you were more like, okay, let's see if this works. But then it grew in the middle of all of this. Like where, what's your mindset at and what are you doing? Yeah. So great question. I would say by the time that we hit the one year mark, I think my husband and I were both pretty you know, 90, 10, 100 to zero. And I think it was a, a process of, you know, watching all of those months progress and getting those no's and no's and no's and no's. It really sort of solidified that this was indeed something that we really wanted that was being, you know, held away from us. So by the time that we finally visited a doctor, you know, I think that we both were just very in alignment that we wanted to make this happen and we were going to figure out what that meant. Um, so initially we went and saw just my regular gynecologist and had a conversation and did some testing. And initially, you know, it came back that it looked like I had PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome, which is pretty common. And it's something that a lot of people struggle with and they do succeed in getting pregnant. So initially my physician wasn't terribly concerned. And in a way he said, you know, well, this is kind of nice because you're 37 and your ovarian reserves are great because it turns out you haven't actually been releasing all of those eggs ah, each month as one would expect. So in a way it was kind of like, okay, well, if you're going to get a diagnosis, this is a good one, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, initially we were just prescribed, um, 
timed intercourse with uh, Clomid medication, which is an ovulation induction medication. And essentially, you know, as I know you guys are familiar with, basically the way that that works is that you're given a medication that will stimulate your ovulation. And then you are essentially given a prescription of on this day, you will have intercourse on this day, you will have intercourse. Right. So romantic. So romantic. I was just going to say, and what does that feel like? (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny because I think when you haven't had to do it, you think, oh, that's kind of fun, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can say certainly that, you know, for my husband and I, that first month embarking upon it, we were excited because we said to ourselves, you know what? We finally have some answers. This isn't great, but this is something that we can handle. And you know what? Let's make these little dates special. Let's go out to dinner. Let's do, you know, the candles and the music and the whole thing. But quickly that grew old. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes. (laughs) So essentially we tried the first month and it didn't work. Uh, and it was a pretty, pretty crushing blow because I think that was sort of the first glimpse that maybe this isn't just a quick, you know, flip the switch and we're fixed kind of situation. So, and where were you at? Where were you at mentally? We still okay. You know, I think again, the fear is creeping in, but I would say that denial was probably still hanging strong and that we felt like, you know what, we've got some things to do here. Um, it was really the second and third months of trying with the Clomid that I started to really have those moments of panic and, um, and also really some moments of pretty intense tension with my husband because, you know, these mandatory dates are not romantic. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think in a relationship, the realization that you're going to have to transition over intercourse from a thing that you share with a loved one to feel close to them to being a clinical prescription is really a difficult thing to do because there are so many emotions tied up in that intimacy and to have that be kind of detached from you, kind of taken away from you, you know, is debilitating in a way because it felt like a lack of power um, and agency. Plus the fact that having medications introduced into your system, you know, suddenly I'm feeling emotions that I am not used to feeling and I'm having anxiety and depression that I haven't had in a long time. And realistically, you know, we have lives, we're busy, we have jobs, we have hard days. Um, I'll never forget one of our our big arguments during that time period was that um, one of our mandatory dates happened to be scheduled for Cinco de Mayo. And it had been (laughs) this incredibly long day at work. And I remember coming home from work and just being like, I just want to eat a taco and go to sleep. Like that is all I want to do. Just give me the taco. And I'm not, I can't because I have to do this thing instead, you know, and then having that feeling. And then obviously my husband is feeling the same way which caused me to be very angry at my husband because I'm saying, listen here, you have one job to do. I have to do the hard part. And I, you know, you're going to give me an attitude about it. And, you know, we really had some, some tough moments there because it was really, I think the beginning of a disconnection between the two of us that we would struggle with for entire duration of the experience, because it really does take away that autonomy that you have in your relationship to make the decisions that you want to make for you. And instead you're having a directive of what you're supposed to be doing and when you're supposed to be doing it. It's true. The thing that you're doing too is not totally benign. Like it's a very special, important, heavy thing. Like you're having sex. That's not something that 
you know, you're doing, you're having intercourse. It's not like you're just like, hey, we, when you get, we get home before the burritos and the tacos, stuff, let's do like a quick workout because that's what the doctor prescribed. It's like, let's do this thing that's very loaded and can become very, um, you know, uh, uh, emotionally heavy and almost feel like intrusive if, if it's not done right. So it's like, it, it's not this just thing that's uh, neither here nor there. It's intercourse. Like that's a big deal. Um, this and is it a big be, deal. Yeah, exactly. And thank you so much for bringing that up, Avon, because I think a lot of people have that struggle and it's shameful or something. It's shameful. It's shameful. It's and shameful. they don't talk about it. They don't bring it up because right. I feel like also stories that are brought up is like, it brought us close together, which is awesome, which is great if it does. And it might. And it might. Yeah, it might. Might not. Might not. But like- there. But yes, it's, there are it, certainly moments. Yeah, but like I think that's so powerful of what you said of like, no, like it's something that was hard for us and something that was hard for us the entire time, not just one time. It's hard the whole time. So thank you so much yeah. for bringing that up. Yeah, it's it was a difficult thing because, you know, intimacy is supposed to be intimate and it's yeah. supposed to be moments of feeling incredibly close to another person. And to have these directives in your mind coming between you you know, I feel like there's some of the most lonely times that I can remember were times that I felt like I was having to be so incredibly vulnerable with my body when I didn't want to be. Yeah. And he didn't want me to be. And he didn't want to be. And, you know, and we were having to do it anyway. And it really, it was really hard and it was really hurtful. And I, and I am happy to talk about it because I think it's something that needs to be talked about because I think that you know, we kind of think, oh, you know, it's just your sex life. That's fine. That's easy. But realistically, it can be so complicated. And when you put in the weight of the expectations and what you're trying to accomplish and not wanting to fail and, you know, what's your future going to look like? And when you layer all of that on top of the act, the act itself becomes so loaded and so complex, as you mentioned, that it really is something that I think is deserving of a conversation all in and of itself. I don't have a lot of times in my life that I don't listen to my own boundaries. I'm not saying that I'm this amazing person, but in our mind, it's like, I don't want to do that. I want to go home and have a taco and go to bed. And this thing makes you push yourself past your own boundaries or your own, like what listening to your body almost like I'm tired. I've worked all day and it makes you like question that or push past things that right. you actually have in your like life or for me to make it healthy. Like that's a healthy thing. This is something I think about a lot is it makes you weigh your priorities. You know, you're coming home and you're like, I'm tired. I just want to go to bed. But then you have the weight of the world on your shoulders of, well, I have this vision for my life and my family that we would be able to get pregnant and have children. So I'm going to prioritize that vision because I don't know how to have a, you know, I don't know how to let go of that. I want that. But that means I have to sacrifice tonight. I have to do this thing with my body where I don't feel very comfortable. I don't really want to do it. I don't feel in the mood to do that. So I'm going to do that. And it's a, just a random Tuesday in March. And, and, and you're, <laughs> you're having to put that kind of pressure on your mind and your mental health on a random Tuesday when you're driving home from work. And I don't think many of us live a life that is prepared to do that. That's, I think, why we exist as an organization, why this conversation is important, is you might just have someone who is not really wanting to have that kind of mental dialogue, prioritize their body over their dreams on a Tuesday on the way home from work. But this is what 
you know, for infertility is making them have to do. And we are not prepared for that. The, and, the average right. person's not prepared. And for when that. we would Absolutely. have that happen and have the random Tuesday where we didn't feel like it, but we had to, in my mind, I would always be like, tell myself, but do you want to have a baby? But do you want right. to have a baby? But do you want right. to have a baby? Right. And that's yeah. just like, who should go into that intimacy with that in your head? Yeah, like totally. that just right. feels so, it's just set up for failure. It absolutely is. And I think it's so difficult for both parties. You know, I mean, obviously as a female, I'm going to take the female side and say, you know, with all the hormones and all the things and, and the fact that, you know, that lack of agency is, is really something that you are having to actually physically have happen to your body in your body. I think that's really traumatic, but it's incredibly traumatic for the man too, because, you know, as much as I don't want to have that boundary crossed, he didn't want to cross it, yeah. you know, yeah. and for him to be asked to do it anyway, knowing that it is not what I wanted, you know, I think it left him feeling extremely uncomfortable because he was yeah. just, you know, like the lack of agency, it just, it feels like neither of you are in control of that. And I think for both people, it's, it's a really tough balance. And again, at the end of the day, you, you tell yourself it's okay because of what you're trying to accomplish And I feel that that's true. And, you know, we would have multiple conversations about that and we would always say, okay, well, this is eyes on the prize sort of situation. But again, back to the compounding grief sort of thing, you know, it's fine for two or three or four months, but when you start creeping into a number of years, um, especially, you know, for us at that moment, having begun the infertility treatments, I think for us, that was sort of the wake up call that like, okay, that year when you were just sort of trying on your own and, you know, had your own kind of time, you know, you had your little ovulation calculator on your phone, but that kind of easy time was over. And here we go into the next phase. And this is going to be a totally different thing. Take us into that. Take us into like, now you're going into, it looks like treatments, like take us into that. Yeah. So after three months of doing the timed um, Clomid dates, uh, we decided that we wanted to escalate to an actual infertility clinic and go see a reproductive endocrinologist. This was another situation that I think I'd like to mention because I think this is important also, you know, going into the experience with our gynecologist, we just took for granted that all gynecologists are created equal and all gynecologists are going to give you good advice. And, you know, you just do what the doctor says, dot, dot, dot. And I think we really learned through our experience with our particular doctor that that's not the case because, you know, right out of the gate, he gave us bad advice with the 12 month thing. He also didn't do any infertility testing at the beginning. And I remember how frustrating it was because when we went back a year later, he asked me how, um, what the general length of was uh, for my cycles. And I said, well, you know, I always have a period every month, but sometimes they're kind of long. It's like 35, 37 days, maybe even 40. And I remember him saying, oh, wow, it sounds like you're not ovulating. We should probably do some tests. And I remember thinking at the time, could you not have asked me that 12 months ago? Because the answer would have been the same 12 months ago, you know? So that was sort of a beginning of, um, realizing that if anybody was going to be my advocate, it needed to be me. And that, you know, as again, one more responsibility to add onto your plate, but I realized, you know, kind of blindly following the doctor wasn't necessarily going to be for the best moving forward. So after our three failed months with the Clomid, the same gynecologist said, well, you know what, let's just do three more months and see what happens. Of course, at this point I'm 39 and a half. So I, or 38 and a half rather. And so I realized, you know what, this guy would just let us do Clomid until I reached menopause. So we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. 
And so we did escalate over to uh, an infertility clinic where we got more significant testing. My husband had not gotten any testing before. So he was also for the first time, you know, the reproductive endocrinologist said, well, why did, why did nobody ever test him? Nobody ever asked him anything about anything, you know? So he started his tests as well. And then I started doing all of my um, various procedures to see if I had any blockages in my fallopian tubes and if I had any other underlying issues that could potentially contribute. Um, so a lot of months of tests, which was sort of a mandatory break, which was kind of nice because, yeah. you know, after the three sort of um, slave driver months with the Clomid, we didn't hate having a little bit of a break, but then all of the tests came back and it turned out that indeed, you know, I did have PCOS as expected. That appeared to be the only issue that I had. Um, and my husband had a couple, he had one male factor issue as well, where essentially I think it was his morphology was off by a percent from what it was wanted to be. Um, and so to find out that we, we both had, you know, quote unquote, an issue was a kind of big moment for us. I hate to say it, but it was actually kind of good news for me. If I could just be as real and honest please, as possible, please. um, because, you know, I think as much as I didn't want for him to have to have the pain of feeling the heaviness of it too, I did also take a little bit of comfort in the fact that, you know, the resentment would be equally dispersed yeah. and or not present. You know, it was sort of a comfort to know, okay, well, I'm not necessarily the one that's failing here. I would never look at him as if he's failing me. But of course, if I feel like it's completely my fault, I'm going to carry the burden for myself. Totally. And so kind of being able to say, okay, well, you know what? We both have a thing. We're in this together. You know, it, as much as it was bad news, it was it was a little bit of a relief, at least for me, mm -hmm. so that I would stop blaming myself so much. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows that you're in it together. But then one, it's not until you've, you know, if, if you do find out, oh, we both have some things going on, there, there's a different level of feeling like we're in it together. You know? I mean, Doug right. and I have the same thing. Yeah. I have, you know, low ovarian reserve and he has sperm issues as well. And there was something oddly uniting about that as just, right. you know, <laughs> and, and freeing of your mind and where your mind goes and yeah. it's your fault and all that. We had a friend right. say one time, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, but he said, he walked up to us and learned about our story and learned that we both had issues. And he's like, well, I guess it's kind of nice that you both have something so you can't just sit around and blame each other. And I was like, you know, okay, I will take that as a compliment, I guess, kind of. Um, right. But, but I also right. like feel for those people that do have a singular diagnosis that it is hard. It's hard. Those feelings come up where you feel like you're failing and then you feel like you write your script for your partner. They must be thinking X, Y, and Z and blaming me. And I've just heard so many people say that like, the person that doesn't have the issue or whatever, it's like, they tell me all the time that they don't, but I can't help thinking they do, you know, and right. it's, it's so hard. It's so hard. Right. And, and there's really no happy answer with that either. Right. Because at the same point, I remember when I did have the moment first of finding out that there, that he had an issue as well of feeling that relief. And then again, feeling guilty that I felt the relief because I'm like, what kind of a person would be celebrating the fact that now this poor man has to carry this also? What is wrong with you? What kind of a horrible human being would possibly find any kind of comfort in a moment like this? Yeah. You know, so yet again, you're sort of being tested with your shame and, you know, all of the feelings that are, that are coming up for you as you're trying to deal with this difficult situation. 
take us into what kind of happens next. Like, let's kind of fast forward into kind of where we are now, um, because I feel like that is going to be so much of the meat of this conversation of just how did we get here? How is Avon still alive, breathing after, you know, what you've gone through? So just kind of take us into kind of what happens next. Absolutely. So essentially after our diagnoses, that is the moment that we really hit the ground running. And again, being really committed to knowing that this is what we wanted to do, we moved forward with IUI procedures, which is intrauterine inseminations. And um, with those, we actually proceeded with doing five and every single one failed. And that was a hard pill to swallow because, you know, that's a procedure that has a fairly high success rate in terms of infertility treatments. And I think that was the time period where I really think that something inside of me kind of broke. Um, You know, the first one didn't work. And I said, you know what, it's fine. It doesn't usually work the first time. It's okay. The second one I really thought was going to work. And when it didn't work, that I feel like was a pretty critical turning point for me of kind of beginning the descent downward into what I would consider a moderate to fairly severe depression, Mm. which kind of plagued me for the whole rest of the time. Um, Failure three was, you know, just getting kicked in the teeth. Four, I don't even remember it because at that point I just felt like I was a cow, you know, in in the little squeeze cages moving from one procedure to the other. The fifth procedure was a pretty terrible one. It took place on Mother's Day, and that was a moment that was pretty hard to stomach. And I remember being in the middle of that procedure, and it wasn't working. The nurse was having trouble with all of the instruments, and it was incredibly painful. And I just remember laying there and thinking to myself, like, what am I doing? You know, and I'm not a particularly religious person, but I had this voice that just appeared in my head out of nowhere, clear as day, that just basically said, listen, when are you going to get the hint? This is not the life for you. Why? Like, how much more clear can I make this for you? You know, you're sitting here on Mother's Day. It's not working. It's not going to work. And realistically, from that moment forward, I think that my um, my nerves were shaken. Uh, because it, it really, you know, who knows where that voice came from? Was it God? Was it fate? Was it me? Was it my fear? Was it right. my gut? Like, who knows? But, you know, from that point forward, I really felt off balance. And so when that fifth IUI failed, it felt less like something that I wasn't expecting. And it felt more like a story playing out that I, I knew was coming all along. Um, So that was a pretty tough summer. Uh, You know, my husband and I talked about what do we do next? You know, uh, the the failure rates for, or excuse me, the success rates for IUIs after the third failure, it tends to kind of level down pretty significantly to where, you know, if it's failed five times, the it it does sometimes work after the fifth one, but it's a, the success rates do go down pretty significantly. So all of a sudden here we are looking at IVF and, The two of us had never thought IVF was going to be in our future. We had talked about it before and said, you know what, if it comes to that point, I think we should just take the hint that, you know, we are not supposed to be parents and it's fine. Let's move on. But again, at this point, we've been trying for over two years and now we're so attached to the idea that even the possibility of quitting 
it just felt inconceivable. So, you know, here we are going back on the thing that we said, and suddenly we're talking about IVF very seriously, because, you know, again, I think you can say in a concrete or an abstract sense, what you're going to do in a situation, you don't know how you're going to react until you oh, actually, I always say you in know? the infertility community, don't ever say never, just don't, never. just don't, it, because then you're setting yourself up that if you get to that point and you have to make that decision, it's like, oh, I said never. And now I'm dealing with that instead of right. just see what happens. We'll cross see that bridge. Happens. I wish I would have said, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I'll think about that when I get there. Cause I did the same thing. Well, we'll never do IVF. And it's like, then you do it. And then you're like arguing with yourself. And then you feel like it becomes weird because you're going back on something you said so hard, but I've done it. Everyone does it. Everybody does it. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that was a hard one. And you know, and it was a tough one too, because when we first started doing our IUI procedures, my husband and I sat down and, you know, kind of had a discussion about how this was going to proceed because I, you know, felt that I, I felt it was necessary for us to sort of lay out, okay, this is going to be hard at certain points, you know, one or both of us are going to want to give up, et cetera, et cetera. We need to kind of figure out how are we going to know when enough is enough and let's figure it out now before we're in the, in the, the mix of it. So we'd had a conversation about a year before that I had led where it was essentially, okay, it has to be a unanimous decision every time we move forward. And if whenever we get to a point, if one person wants to stop and the other person doesn't, we're going to stop and we can't be upset at that. I mean, we can be disappointed, but that is the rules. We have to both agree that we want to move forward or else we're done. Um, when I said it, I think that I was thinking that my husband would reach that point before I did, because mm. I think just stereotypically I'm thinking, you know, I'm the woman I'm going to be hanging on and he's going to be wanting to yeah. quit. Right. It turned out that it kind of was the opposite. Mm. And so going into the IVF conversations, I think that had he wanted to quit at that point, I would have probably quit at that point yeah. because I think, you know, again, just my mental health being very low, um, having gone through all that we had just gone through, you know, again, being really shaken up by just that feeling that it wasn't going to work out. And I was trying to force something that wasn't meant to be, you know, and then of course you start panicking where you're like, well, if I force something that's not meant to be, and then my baby's born and there's something terribly wrong with them. And will it be my fault? Cause I didn't listen. And the yeah. universe was trying to all the things that you never want to think. But anyway, my husband was pretty, uh, resolute that he wanted to move forward. And I think I was too. I think I was too. Um, the reason I say, I, <laughs> I feel think, that I think I was, I think, that. I think I was, Yeah. I, I know that my gas tank was empty at that moment. I know that I had a feeling of, I can't continue to do this anymore. And that was a pretty hard feeling for me because again, as an Enneagram three, I can do anything, put my head down, I'm yeah. going to get it done. And so to have myself show up and say, you know what? I can't take anymore was probably the first time in my life I've ever felt that. And I don't think I was ready to hear it. And so I think that I, I pushed forward there, even though I believe if I look back with 100% clarity in hindsight, I think my body was done then. And, you know, I just wasn't ready to face it. I didn't want to disappoint my husband, you know, and I, I just really wanted to hang on. So we moved forward and that was that. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if I so can, hard. if I can ask, I wonder if there's something warring inside of you in that moment, something that's, tell, you know, 
the reality maybe is, and your body is giving you this information that I am done. Maybe it sounds like God, your mind, some you, it is coming to you that you are done. This is not the life for you. However, it's butting into this maybe preconceived idea, this long held belief, this personality that you have. It's like, no, this is how I do things. I get stuff done. I work at it until it works. And I am not a quitter. Yeah, I'm not a quitter. And I'm wondering, that's got to be a chaotic, kind of scary position to be in. The, the, like your, the reality of it's not working is coming up against, yeah, but I make things work. It, did, were exactly. you conscious of that or was it just kind of all happening under the surface? You know, I, I think I was mostly conscious of it, mm-hmm. actually. Um, I think it was so obvious that it was hard to miss. I, I think, again... I feel that during this time, it was sort of a, a, a war of my brain versus my, my brain and my heart versus my body and my brain and my heart were going to find a way to make it work. You know? So I think that I knew in some regard, I think I knew what I was doing, but again, I am not a quitter. I'm not a person that gives up, you know, if, if something doesn't work out and it's not in my control, you know, Sure, theoretically, but I'm going to find a way to make it be in my control and I'm going to keep going until I can't, you know, and And that was was, sort of my insight. Yeah. What was your mental state like? Very bad. Uh, Mm. It was very, very bad. That was, it was a really, really low point for me. I, um, I remember again, for the first time in my life, being at a a position where I felt like I can't do this anymore. And because I wasn't going to listen, Um, I decided instead that I should just start taking antidepressants Mm -hmm. and totally fine. You know what? I'm still taking them to this day and they are fantastic. Um, (laughs) I've always been a person who was prone to anxiety. I wasn't necessarily a person who was prone to depression, but I had both. And, um, you know, all of a sudden it became too much to bear. And so I decided, you know what, we'll just, we'll just start taking antidepressant medications and we're going to keep plugging forward. And that's exactly what we did. And then what was that like? You are feeling like your body is done, but your brain is like, no, I will not. I will keep going. What was that like in your pursuing treatments in that kind of, um, body stance? How, how was that? Take us into the whole IVF experience. Honestly, it was a little bit out of body because I yeah. think, you know, what was happening there was a cognitive dissonance, right? Where I I knew on some level uh, that I was not okay and I was unwilling to accept that. And so I sort of compartmentalized those two things and just kind of kept my head down and went anyway. Um, and so really the next several months, in a way, it's even it's hard to even remember exactly what was going on there because everything was so out of my control. You know, I had the antidepressants that were uh, impacting, you know, how I felt, but then I had all of the cocktail of hormones and shots and medications. And obviously, you know, the first step with IVF is that you have to do your egg retrieval. Um, so you are just being loaded with all of the hormones and everything. And then again, the compounding stress and all of the things that were happening at that time, I think it was really a moment of just put your head down and do one step forward at a time. And that's all that you can do. It was a batten down the hatches situation. Yeah. When was the moment, and maybe I'm getting too far ahead, where that didn't happen anymore? That wasn't happening anymore? 
Well, so the next thing that happened in the process was we did go forward with the egg retrieval Mm -hmm. and it was actually pretty successful. We managed to get, um, I think it was 16, uh, eggs were retrieved and then, you know, they do all the different things where it's then six, make it to day, whatever. And then we do the test and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, we had two viable embryos and one mosaic embryo, which is sort of an abnormal embryo. Sometimes they're okay. Sometimes they're not. So we moved forward with our first IVF transfer um, in the spring of that year. So we're coming up on three years of the journey at this point. And we did our first IVF transfer. And I, at that point, I was at a moment where even the audacity of having hope felt like something I wasn't capable of doing. You know, when people would say, Oh, just keep your head up and whatever, you know, be positive. I remember being like, don't you dare give me hope. And that is, I can't handle it. But when we did do that IVF transfer as much as I could, I, I brought down my walls again, you know, and I, and I really, it was laborious. I remember literally feeling like I had these bricks around my heart that I had to pull down And I did because I wanted to be open-minded about that transfer and I wanted to hope for the best. And, you know, during that period, I really, after the transfer, I really got attached to that embryo, you know, that I, that I thought I had growing inside me and I had conversations with it and I did all the things that you do. And I remember feeling like it's okay to hope a little bit right now, you know, because you want to, you want to be open-minded and, and it didn't work. Uh, And when that IVF transfer failed, you know, again, I thought, I think I didn't think I was capable of dropping further than I was in terms of my mental health. And suddenly I did. So that failed. It was a really dark time. Um, our doctor recommended that rather than just proceeding with the second transfer, we go and talk to a genetic counselor about the mosaic, uh, embryo to see if that was viable. It turned out that it was not viable, which took us down to one embryo. And rather than quickly transferring it, we proceeded with a procedure known as an ERA, which is essentially a mock transfer. And then at the end of it, rather than implanting the embryo, they take a biopsy of your uterus and send it away to see if there's any kind of inflammation or anything going on in your uterus that you would need to be aware of um, to decide if you're transferring at the right time, if there's medications you should be taking, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, all that means that you have to just go through the whole process again and trick your body into thinking it's pregnant, taking all the shots, doing all the things, going through the whole thing. And then just rather than getting an embryo, you get a big <laughs> hunk of your uterus yeah, it feels taken cruel. out. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. Every time so, I hear the word mock something, I'm like, oh, so yeah, and it was really painful. It was really mm-hmm. painful. I know it's not painful for all people. I apparently have a kind of tilted cervix, so it was physically painful in addition to being mentally painful. But, you know, we we did do the ERA. We got back the results that the timing was correct, but there was some unexplained inflammation in my uterus. So rather than proceeding with the second transfer, I was then shifted into a medication that put me in a sort of a pseudo state of menopause for the next three months. The idea being that if you go into menopause, quote unquote, then any inflammation that is in your uterus should go down. And then at the conclusion of that, you can move forward with your egg transfer. So, you know, I went from being pregnant, being pregnant to to, to then being in menopause three months in a row, complete with all of the menopause symptoms like hot flashes and discomfort 
and you know, all of the things that come along with it. Yeah. Where were you at mentally? Oh, awful. <laughs> Take us in. You what know, do you mean by that? Awful. Well, it was at this point again, every single failure just took me back to that feeling of what are you doing? You know, why are you continuing to, again, like how much more obvious can we make this? This is not supposed to be your story. And, you know, again, is that coming from me? Is that coming from some external source? Like who knows? But I was sort of plagued by that. And every time at this point that I would get a delay or I'd get bad news, I'd say, of course, of course, of course, it's not going to work out because it wouldn't work out because it's not supposed to work out. And then at that point, you start to feel guilty because you say to yourself, like, is it my attitude? Right. You know, am I, is it the fact that I don't have a good attitude? Is that the problem? But, you know, I, I tried as best as I could to get through it. The three months of not being in any active transfers, it was actually a nice little breath of air. Yeah. Um, I can report from the other side of menopause that the hot flashes are terrible, but I felt a, a lot um, less depressed yeah. than I did when I was on all of the other, you know, stimulation medications. So yeah. I had a little bit of a three month break there and I think I, I really needed it. My husband and I really worked on trying to kind of get to a better mental spot so that when we did undergo that third transfer, excuse me, the second transfer, that, you know, we could be in as best of a, of a space as we could possibly be. And so, um, so we did, we did the three months and then we scheduled our, um, final transfer and took all the medications, did all the shots, got ready for everything, you know, did all the checkups. Everything was wonderful. We were four days before our scheduled transfer and a massive category five hurricane decided to head right for our hometown in Florida. And as you can imagine, the procedure got canceled. Uh, I I remember writing in my journal, um, you know, a couple of days before, like saying, you know, this time next week, I'm gonna know, you know, after all these years, at this point, it's been almost four years, three and a half years at that point, and it's gonna be over in a week. And, you know, I, the, the, the nurse says everything's okay. I'm still feeling a little bit skeptical, but you know what? Here we go. And then, of course, here comes this hurricane. And I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, there you are. <laughs> I knew there yes. was something. Yes. <laughs> I knew I was waiting I for you, I knew I was sir. doomed. Like yeah. I always say, <laughs> exactly. it teaches you when the next shoe's going to drop. It's like, oh, exactly. there it is. It's a Category 5 hurricane. When the next hurricane. And you were of in course. our groups at the time when that was happening. Yeah. And I remember yes. I remember you saying that and me and Doug both being like, wow, I have heard a lot of things. I know. Yeah. But I have never heard <laughs> that. <laughs> that was the delay. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the delay. And oh. I was literally in the line for sandbags when I got the call from my clinic that, and it was a two hour long line to get sandbags to, you know, put around your house to make sure that your house is not going to flood. So I'm sitting in my car in this two hour massive line to get my sandbags. And I know the procedure is going to be delayed. I just know it. And then here comes a phone call and surprise it's delayed. And I remember just sitting in my car and just sobbing my eyes out. And uh, we ended up having to evacuate because we were in an evacuation zone. We went to a nearby city, stayed with my brother-in-law. And as my body is going through the withdrawals of the sudden stop of my progesterone shots and all of those things, my 
brother-in-law's back deck starts flooding and water is rushing into the house and we have nothing to bail out the water. So we're trying to bail out the water with this dustpan and this igloo cooler. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, could there be a lower moment in my life? My body is going through withdrawals. Like all these things are happening and I, literally the world is ending. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I think that many times on our infertility journey, things become existential or bigger, bigger than what we're just doing. You know, it's, it's more than just the drugs and the treatment and all that kind of stuff. It becomes about our life. And then it almost becomes about life in general. And I think this topic of things working out or not working and this story that you've had of just, it's not working out. It's not working out. This, this moment had to have or maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Oh. This moment seems to, it would have made me go totally existential. The ultimate. At, you know, at the end, if what feels like at the end of your journey, you've said yes to all these things. Nothing's worked out. You're like, okay, here it comes. And then a hurricane and you're bailing the water out with this dustpan. Sweating. Detoxing sure from all of these hormones. Yes. I mean, was yes. there a moment almost <laughs> as if in a movie where you look up at the hurricane and just scream like, Why? Uh, 100%. I know this was like the Shawshank Redemption moment, right? Yeah, Where yeah, it was yeah. just, it was a moment of complete and total surrender. And, um, and you know, and the, and the thing that was hard is that obviously it wasn't just a short delay. It ended up being a six week delay to yeah. be able to do the transfer again. And that means um, you have to redo everything. The right? whole, the yeah. whole thing. I didn't have to redo the menopause shots. I was a little bit afraid that I was going to get probably a four month delay, but they ended up proceeding without it. But you know, had to go through, um, taking birth control again for a minute, going yeah. through a period and then kind of restarting everything up again. And I remember during that time, actually, it's funny. I was in your process group and yeah. I remember one evening, Doug, you asked me how I was doing. And I was just sort of sitting there in the group. And I remember my answer so clearly, cause it was so like just bizarre. But I remember saying to you, you know, when you hit roadkill driving down the road, but then like the, the roadkill gets sucked up under the wheel well, and it's just going while you're going down the highway. Like that's me. I remember that. Because <laughs> again, I think I said, I've never heard that before, but I completely know what that feels like. And, and it just occurred. I mean, on the spot, that was yeah. like, how am I doing? And the vision of roadkill jumped into my mind. <laughs> right. But you know, um, well, I was going to ask you, I, what does one feel to do that last, that last transfer of an embryo? What does that, you know, feel? at that point, to be honest with you, you know, of course it's easy to, to look in the rear view mirror and think things happen for a reason, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, you know, for me, honestly, I think having gone through all the things that I had gone through and how terrible it was, the fact that I was going to get an answer one way or the other, it started to look really good you know, and maybe I needed to go through all that I went through to be able to contextualize the journey in that way to where for me really heading into that final transfer, you know, I obviously I wanted it to work more than anything, but at the same point, I took comfort in the fact that, you know what, if it doesn't work, it means you're done. Yeah. And that's a pretty good thing too. So mm -hmm. I really think that, you know, going into that final transfer, I was in a better headspace because I, that I expected. And the reason was because I knew that no matter what I was done, I yeah. was officially done. Yeah. 
So walk us into, obviously, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. (laughs) Did you have the same feeling? Like, I feel like I would want to have that same feeling, but it would be complicated. What was that like? Well, so we did the second transfer and, you know, I will, I will say that the experience of that wait period between the transfer and that final negative pregnancy test, it was very different from the first transfer, um, to the point where, you know, after the first transfer, I'm sitting there talking to, you know, the little being inside of my belly and kind of dreaming about nurseries and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, this one, I remember specifically telling my husband that I wasn't going to talk to it, um, until it decided to start to, to sign a long-term lease, um, to be a part of this journey. I called it the tenant, um, you know, and I, and I basically really just kind of tried to pretend it wasn't happening best as I could. Of course, my feelings crept in here and there, but I think I was just so guarded that I felt like I, I had a bomb in my stomach. Yeah. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to say anything. Um, around this time too, I remember thinking that, you know what, if this doesn't work, um, I'm going to write a memoir about this. And that was something that I needed, I think at that moment too, because I, it was easy to, of course, you want to dream about what your life's going to look like if it doesn't happen. But I, I couldn't really let myself go there of dreaming about what would happen if it succeeded because it, everything I dreamed about was going to hurt. So I started dreaming about the things that I was going to do if it failed. And, uh, you know, some of them were kind of obvious things like, uh, go to an infertility grief retreat and you know what, go to a nice one in Spain or something, yeah. cause you're going to have money, right? You're not going to have to raise kids. So I was dreaming about that. I was dreaming about being able to work out again. There's so many times when you're in the process that you're not allowed to do any kind of strenuous exercise. I'd always been a runner. So I was really excited to be able to get back to running, to be able to get back to doing those physical things that I loved. Um, and I, you know, also identified, I want to write a memoir about this so that I can help other people who are struggling, because if I could do that, then that means that this wasn't for nothing. Yeah. You know, that, that can be the thing that can make me think that, that it's okay that it happened because of this. So Mm -hmm. I started to, to hang on to that idea. I originally was going to write the book and I was going to title it negative, (laughs) (laughs) which, uh, you know, a little dark, I also had this idea like of, um, you know, I was going to do, uh, oh, I had, I had the, the cover all planned out. You know, a lot of times when people have a, an infertility baby, they'll take a really adorable newborn photo with all of the, the needles around yeah. like in a heart or something. So in my head, I'm like, I'm going to name it negative and I'm going to have all of the needles and they're going to be pointing to an empty crib, you know, <laughs> or like a negative pregnancy test. Yeah. And of course, I mean, you know, I was, I was angry is yes. what I was, yeah. but, but regardless, you know, the idea that I could actually write something that would be helpful to other people to tell them that they weren't going to die. Um, that's, that was the thing that, and I think of course, most writers, I am a writer by trade. Most writers, when they write things, they write them for themselves, uh, for themselves before anybody else. And I think I needed to hear that I wasn't going to die. So I was able to, um, put that boundary around it and tell myself that, you know what, if you can teach other people that they're not going to die, then that means you're not going to die either.
So for me, the, the major question that I have for you is that upon looking at all of this, hearing all of this story, first, I'm so sorry that you know we've had, we have to be here to go through all of this and you've had to go through all of what you've gone through. But at the end of looking at all this, it feels like stacked one upon another is these things that didn't work out to the point where you're waiting for this last result, you get this negative result. It's the almost this cosmic, meta, existential, whatever word you want to use to say like, it's not working, it didn't work out. How did you not let that, or maybe what was the seed that started hope for you and your life working out because of all these things not working out? Did I word that correctly? Yeah. Hopefully I did. Is it, yeah. At the end of this long series of things not working out, where do you start to grow this life that's working out? Because it feels like at, at the end of all this, you'd just be like, screw it. It didn't work out. I'm, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go watch Netflix and just do die. Nef- just die. Right? <laughs> die. Like, but, but like, I like how you said, it's like, I'm not dead. This didn't kill me. Is that the seed that started this sense of, oh, it's going to work out for me, even though all of this didn't work out? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it, it was a journey, obviously. Um, the, the final failure was devastating, but, you know, again, there was so much relief there too. And if I'm honest, the relief was so intense that it really helped to, it helped to ease that burden of the grief because I knew, you know what, I'm sad, but that means that I get to move forward now. That means that I get to start living life for me again. You know, one of the things that people ask us a lot about is, you know, like, well, why didn't you do another egg transfer? Why didn't you do adoption? Why didn't you just continue, continue, continue? But, you know, for me, I think that was my enough moment where finally, 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 I couldn't deny that we were done, you know, and five IUIs, two IVF transfers, all of the years, all of the time, you know, and it was just, I think, as much as it was terrible, it was that that Enneagram three in me needed to go through all of the things to say, you know what, we tried. And so I, I think that I was really happy to to finally get to that point. Um, how do you, and then I have that, a question, Wait, I have a question yeah. about that of how do you do that though? As a three, I could be, see that that would be difficult because there are other options, right? Like how did you become resolute that that was your enough? Cause there is donor egg, there's a do- there's foster care, whatever. How did you, how did you figure that out or be resolute in that that was actually enough? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that there were so many questions that I had along the way of, you know, should we do this? Should we do another thing? Should we, whatever. But I think at that point, you know, having exhausted the entire IVF process from start to finish, we have no more embryos. If we want to do it again, we got to start from scratch and do the whole thing. You know, it it felt like a natural stopping point for me. And in looking at the other options that we had available, you know, I, I thought about adoption briefly, but, you know, I know that's a completely different thing and it's got its own ups and downs, its own processes. And a lot of times it can take a long, long time and you have a whole thing to go through and you have, you know, biological mothers that change their mind at the last minute and they should, God bless them, keep your babies. But for the person on the other end, it, it can be an incredibly torturous journey. And I think for me, you know, I felt like I had been standing at a crossroads for so long, you know, it was about four years at that point of literally standing at a crossroads that for me, being able to take a step forward in either direction, be a parent or don't be a parent, be a parent wasn't an option, but 
take a step forward and don't be a parent or continue standing at this crossroads for an indeterminate amount of time. I chose to take a step forward, you know, Mm -hmm. and that honestly was the easiest decision that I made. And I have no regrets about that because Mm -hmm. I feel like I ran the process out to the ability that I had. Yeah. And then when I reached my end, it was a period. It wasn't a dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. How did you emotionally deal with that? It took a long time. So the last negative pregnancy test there with the failure of that second IVF, that took place a year and two months ago. And really the past year has been an incredible journey of grief in all of its different forms. You know, I think initially after the failure, there was a little burst of hope of like, oh, we get to work out again and we get to do this again. And look at me, I'm going to go talk to a nutritionist and I'm going to lose all this weight that I put on because of all of these various procedures. And I'm just going to pretend that nothing happened and get back to my life. And it's going to be amazing. You know, so I think I sort of immediately displaced my uh, desire for the family to be the desire to get back my autonomy Mm -hmm. because that had been absent for so very long. So I very stubbornly chose that to be my next adventure. And I decided I was going to run a half marathon and I was going to travel the world and, you know, do these bike tours and blah, blah, blah. Well, two months into last year, I went on a ski trip with my husband and broke my leg. So, um, the, the half marathon and my dreams of becoming, you know, a fit, uh, bodybuilder kind of person immediately evaporated a major hindrance in your world travel, world domination, breaking your leg. That was, that was a low one. Cause again, it was like, will these hits just please stop coming, you know? Um, but I think the fact that I had that injury, it, it made me actually reckon with the grief that I had rather than trying to displace that energy somewhere else. Um, so really for the past, you know, about a year now, I I've had to sit with it and I've had to feel it and I've had to be angry and I've had to, you know, think about all of the, the pain and the suffering. My husband and I have had to have really different difficult conversations about what does our life look like and what are we going to do and how's that going to go more than anything. I think finally it took about six or seven months before I really even identified this, but I had to forgive my body Mm. for failing me, you know, and that honestly was the, was the biggest turning point for me was actually forgiving my body. Uh, because I think again, being a person who wants to accomplish and do all the things I hated it. I hated my body. I hated it for failing. I hated the way that it looked. I hated the fact that it had changed. I hated the fact that like my sex drive was different. I hated the fact that I wasn't the person that I was when it all started. And, and I think even with all of the, the exercise and the dreams and the goals and the marathon, that was all me trying to punish it in a way, you know? So here I am, I've gone through this terrible thing and I'm just punishing myself over and over again because of all of this hatred that I had at myself, you know, for failing. Um, and how did and you t- get over that? Yeah. How, or do you, have you? <laughs> well, you know, it's a work in progress, but yeah. I think I have a really wise friend who asked me to picture that part of myself, um, that body part of myself as a little 10 year old. 
a vulnerable, people-pleasing little 10-year-old with her leg in a cast, you know, who's just been through all of this trauma and to turn and look at that person and and see how she is and see what she wants to say to you. And does she want to even look you in the face? And, you know, and I really, I am so thankful for my friend because in doing that, I just remember it, you know, it feels weird, right. To sit there and be like, I'm going to embody my body. But I had this moment where I sort of, I took a look at myself as a different person and, and, you know, and I thought about how much that body had suffered and how hard that body had tried. And if it had been possible to succeed, it would have succeeded. She would have done it if she could have. And she was trying so hard to please me and to make me happy and to fulfill her destiny. And she wasn't able to, and it wasn't her fault, you know, and rather than continuing to abuse her and hate her and wish that she was different, you know, I needed to embrace her and I needed to embrace her new size and the fact that her body was different and the fact that she now had a broken leg because I did that to her and, and really be soft with myself um, and actually be the comforting presence that I needed the whole time. But I had to be able to do that to myself. So um, that kind of happened for me last summer. And again, I think that was a, a pretty critical moment for me. That's really beautiful, Avon. That is just a really beautiful picture of, because I think a lot of us struggle with body stuff and shame and it's changed and all of those things. And I just thank you for bringing light to that because I think that's very important. Um, and I just love your honesty of like, that wasn't me accepting my body. That was punishing my body. Yeah. Right. And I just Absolutely. love that whole image. That I think it totally makes sense when you think of what we're talking about or what I, the, how I'm viewing this is all these things not working out. How do you get to a place where this seed of a life starts to grow where you as an individual workout is, I, I think I probably would have mapped on and been exactly like you is, okay, that's going to look like me dominating. You know what I mean? Like I'm going right. to take this failure, this thing, win not, at this, other yes, thing. <laughs> this didn't work out, but watch how much this next thing's going to work out, you know? And, and I probably would have broken both my legs, you know, I was saying, yeah. what the same right. thing, broke your leg, you know, it's so, um, met, like metaphoric, but, uh, and so perfect at the same time that like, you know, you break a leg, it's kind of like your body goes, no, you're not getting it. What you can't I need, avoid it. Yeah, you can't avoid it. And I think where, where you've come from, where you've come to this sense of, oh no, the new growth, the thing that works out, the me that's going to work out is the one that's tender and kind and slow and, and deals with what reality is and is, is gentle and walking with the, my body, with myself into the future, kind of hand in hand, not like, you know, you're not driving it, steering it into the future, like some ship that's like breaking apart, but you're walking with it. You're walking with yourself saying, this is who I am. And I, and I can build a life that works out in knowing and dealing and embracing with all the things that didn't work out. You know, it's 100%. almost, it's almost counterintuitive. You know, how do you live a life that ends up working out for you? It's it, will you embrace all the things that didn't work out and you don't run away from them. You embrace them. And I feel like right. we talk about this in our process groups when we talk about ownership. And I feel like I always say the same thing. And I feel like you're just embodying this is true ownership looks like peace. It doesn't right. look like Joan of Arc. 
where it's right. like you're coming in and you're gonna slay the dragon or whatever she did. Right. She didn't slay dragons. Just, just in case <laughs> any history really. buffs are listening to this podcast. Whatever she did, I'm sure she was BA. Okay. <laughs> but it's like it really looks like peace. And I feel like that's like where you're at right now, yeah. or at least trying daily at me too, like trying to just really just embrace all of it, the good, the bad, all of it. Um, how do you feel like your grief looks now? Would you say? Well, transformative, you know? Um, so I mentioned this memoir I decided I was going to write and I ended up writing it actually. So this past year I've been sort of grieving in real time through the process of writing this book, but I didn't call it negative. I don't, I'm not going to have needles on the cover. Um, I was playing with ideas of, of what I wanted this book to say rather than just being, you know, this is what happened to me. And you know, I was playing with words and I remember thinking of the word barren because that's a word you hear a lot with people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was thinking about it and then I said, but I don't feel barren because barren implies that nothing can grow here. And I don't feel like that's who I am. So I was looking into some agricultural terminology and I came across this term that I hadn't really heard before. Maybe I'd heard it in passing, but there is this term in agriculture that's called fallow. And fallow ground is very similar to barren ground, except with one key difference, where barren ground is land that is devoid of nutrients and unable to grow anything. Fallow ground is land that is tired. It's land that has been overworked. The nutrients have been depleted out of it. People are trying to get it to follow the rules and get in line and grow a crop and the land just simply can't do it. But that doesn't mean that it's barren. It just means that it needs to rest. And so I really dove into that metaphor over the past year of kind of thinking of myself, not as a barren person, but as a fallow person who's in a period of rest. And really that metaphor became the metaphor of my book. Um, it's called fallow ground and it's a memoir of infertility, grief, and wildness. And in the book, I was able to use it as a, as grief, you know, exercise for myself, but I very much explored the idea that, you know, just because we people who can't have biological children can't have biological children, it doesn't mean that we can't grow anything. You know, some people were put here on this earth to be able to grow babies. Some people were put here to be able to grow businesses or books or, communities or art or whatever. And so the idea is if we let ourselves rest and heal and let ourselves regain those nutrients that we've allowed to get depleted um, or have been taken from us, you know, we can all grow something. And it's just a matter of what that something is and recognizing that it's not a matter of your worth. It's just that, you know what, I wasn't put here to make a baby. Maybe I was put here to make this book about trying to make a baby or to connect with people like you who make a difference every day in the lives of people who are struggling. Like maybe that's the thing that we were meant to grow, you know? And so I was able to write the book. I actually just finished it a couple weeks ago. I'm still in the process of editing it. I know you guys are taking a look through it right yes. now. Yeah, we, are, um, we are anxiously hopefully. excited for the world. To see I am it. Yeah. one fourth yes. in and I am like, this is so good. <laughs> 
I'm so, so excited. So, you know, hopefully I'll get to finish those edits, get it shopped out to publishers, maybe get it even published someday. But, um, you know, I really have been listening to that in myself in terms of, you know, okay, so I wasn't put here to make a baby. What was I put here to do? And really kind of looking at it as what am I going to embrace for the next part of my life here? You know, I'm 42 now, started the journey when I was 37. I'm 42 now. And if I'm lucky, I've got at least 42 years left. And what am I going to make with the time that I have? And, you know, having the ability to make that choice is, has made all the difference for me because it, again, in, in, in a journey that is so without autonomy, being able to make the choice that I get to make the next part of my life look like whatever I want it to look like, it, it, that feels like peace. And that's exactly what you said. So I feel like even we have these last couple minutes where I just want to ask you actually two questions because I feel like there is not a lot of space in the infertility community or whatever to talk to someone like you who has been through a lot of things, have a lot of things not work out. And then you had the ultimate not work out of just, you know, you and I are people's biggest fears. I can't have biological children. You can't have biological children. Right. And what would you say to someone who's in the thick of it, say you two years ago, um, to someone who is afraid that they would have that be the outcome or their biggest fear would come to be realized? What would you say to someone like that? Well, first of all, I hope it doesn't happen to you. Of course. Same. I want your journey to end with a baby. I want everybody's journey to end with a baby. What I would say though to that person is I hope it doesn't happen to you, but if it does, I want you to know that you can do it and that you are stronger than you think and that you are not alone. I think that's the biggest thing. You can do it. And I know you don't want to do it and I hope you don't have to do it, but I will say having had to do it, knowing that you guys have had to do it also, the fact that you guys had to do it gave me comfort that I could do it. Mm. And then, you know, maybe the fact that I couldn't do it could give somebody else comfort too. And I feel like being able to pay that forward is really the biggest gift that I would ever hope to be able to give. I can also say that my entire outlook on life has changed since that final failure, because I'm going to call it a failure because that's how it felt to me. But as a person who always wanted to succeed, wanted to accomplish, wanted to do the things. I failed. I failed spectacularly. I had the biggest failure that a biological organism can have and it didn't kill me, you know? So it's very much like the realization of your absolute worst nightmare happens and then you look around and realize that you're still standing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm still me. And I still have the things I care about. I have the things I love about. I have an incredible spouse who stands by my side and is here for me and is committed to moving forward in the future. And I'm so thankful for that. But I've reached a place that even if he wasn't okay with it, I would be, I would be okay. I know I'm going to be okay, you know, and I'm so happy that I get to walk this next chapter with my husband, but I have reached a place of internal peace that I know that 
even if I were to lose everything I have, I'm going to survive because I survived this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it it really has led me to such a place of deep internal peace. Um, They say that you don't really know what you're made of until you have to find out. And I found out. Um, And so I can, I can tell you my, my anxiety has declined to the point where I don't even feel like I am a person who has anxiety anymore. And I have this, um, this sense of groundedness that I've never had. I have this sense of patience that I've never had. I am more attuned to the things that are happening around me. And there's just, like you said earlier, Jesse, it's just a feeling of peace because I got through that and the rest of my life is looking pretty good. So, um, to those people that are thinking that they could never survive, I just want to say again, I hope you don't have to, but if you will, you can, and you're not alone in that. Yes. Yes. I always, I know, clap it up. <laughs> I, I always say, cause I feel like I get this question all the time being people's biggest fears, which is totally fine. Um, <laughs> totally fine. It, it not is, weird at all. I was my biggest fear. <laughs> So um, I have no, there's no shame in thinking that or anything like that. Um, I always say that it is just a season. Four years is a really long time. 10 years over here is a really long time, but it is just a season. So you have to, even if it's 15 years long, you have to think about you on the other side of it. And you have to think about yourself because you are going to be here at the end of it, no matter how it plays out. You get pregnant, you don't. You adopt children, you do donor eggs, you walk away child-free, however you want to say it. It's, you are still going to be here. So you cannot forget about her, him, whatever, yourself, because it is just a season, even if it is really, really, really long. I love the name of your memoir, Fallow Ground. I think it's exactly, I think the, the what I'm trying to get at in my mind is how do you transition from it's not working, it's not working, it's not working to it's working. I think it's transitioning what that it is. (laughs) Sorry if that's confusing, but you know, you keep planting this same thing and it's like, it's not working. This ground is overworked. It's what it needs is rest and a new rhythm. And I think that's, that's, I feel that's what you're doing. Avon is you're investing in a new crop. If that makes sense, not not to be too literal, but, but to say, this life that you're leading is one that has a ton of meaning in it and a ton of purpose. Um, but it looks different than maybe it did 10 years ago. And that's okay. I think it's really scary to make that transition. But like you said, you kind of go through, you go through the hell of it and you come out the other end going, that was the scariest thing that I could ever possibly imagine, but I'm here and I'm making this new, new life, this sense of meaning. And it's, it's wonderful totally different. And yes, the ground got scorched in the process, but I'm learning to allow myself to rest and, and re-envision, kind of replant what life could be. I yeah, that's beautiful. Right. right. And you know, and it's one of those things too, where, you know, not to, you obviously don't want to sugarcoat it because there's grief. There's always grief. Right, right. You know, I'm, I, I had to realize early on that there is going to be a part of me that is grieving this loss for the rest of my life you know, because it's not just one little loss. It's a, it's a, an infinite number of losses, you know, of, of not getting to be pregnant, not getting to have a baby, not getting to the teething and the first day of school and teaching them how to drive and sending them off to college and weddings. And, you know, I mean, and it culminates with now I'm sitting in a nursing home by myself, like that I yeah. will have those questions for the, the rest of my life. So 
this is not something I can get away from. But at the same point, the, the wound doesn't heal, but it, you get stronger, you get scars around it. And I think that there's a sense of acceptance as well that I, I, I feel that, you know, I'm going to have the reminder of this forever. And if I wanted to, I could choose to let that break me. And, uh, I remember my mom told me the best piece of advice that she ever received was from, um, a therapist years prior with some other, you know, personal things that she'd been going through. And she was talking to this therapist and this therapist said to the, to her, you know, you have every right to become a bitter, angry, unhappy person because of everything that's happened to you. It's terrible. And if you chose to, you would be absolutely entitled to be an upset, miserable person for the rest of your life. But you don't have to choose that. There are other options for you. And if you choose to have a different life, you could do that too. You know, and so for me, that's, I think it's just a powerful. Idea. I, I, yeah. Steam tear, yeah. steam tear. Just yeah. Then. Just. yeah. Yeah. I, I'm telling you, my mom told me that years ago and I've never forgotten it because realistically, you know, every single day you get to make the choice of what you want your life to be. And I still have sad days. I still have angry days. I still have those thoughts that pop in my head where I'm like, Ooh, who said that? Mm-hmm. You know, but they're coming less frequently now. And when they come, I don't judge them as much as I used to. And I think, you know, it, it's a, it's a slow motion change, but when yeah. you look backward, you realize how many steps that you've taken. Mm-hmm. And again, it's every single day, just deciding you know what, maybe today is only the day where I can move from my bed to the couch and that's Mm -hmm. all I can do, but I still choose to do that. And then tomorrow I'm going to choose to go outside for five minutes and breathe some fresh air. And then the next day, maybe I'm back on the couch. And then the Mm -hmm. day after that, maybe I go walk for a walk, you know, but it's just, it's refusing to stay still and let it become who I am because there's so many other things that I can be. And I get to decide what those things are. It makes me wonder, I think it's possible this entire conversation is applicable to anyone who's dealt with infertility. I know maybe it maybe sound like we're talking about people who end up getting, like you said, you're, Jesse, were people's worst fear of like getting to the end and never getting pregnant. I think it's also possible, I have just people in mind that even though, even though you maybe have gotten pregnant and you have a baby, the life that you had to lead to get there, the infertility that you had to go through is so scarring that it almost is like you have to make sense of that because maybe if you want to get pregnant again, you get, you're thinking, okay, that means I have to go back to that world. I have to go back to IVF or there's this almost like feeling that it's a permanent thing that you went through that not now that you're pregnant, it's not like, Oh, don't don't think about that anymore. Yeah. There is a new sense of, everything didn't work out the way I wanted it to. So how do I create a future that incorporates what I've gone through? I think it's these same skills that you're talking about. It's this rest and grief and process of saying, I could, yes, become maybe an anxious parent or, uh, you know, an angry older person, but I don't have to, I can choose to, to sow new seeds almost, you know? Exactly. That's good. And then my last question for you, and I, I've asked these very poignantly because I feel like it's what I hear from the other side of just what is that like? Um, because I feel like I get a lot of them because of me and because I couldn't have biological children. Um, is what's it like to live in a world as an infertile woman choosing to not pursue treatment anymore and be surrounded by 
families and holidays and nieces and nephews or just living in a world where you're not the norm. You're not the typical. You're not the, it all worked out. What is that like day in, day out? It's, it's not the easiest life, you know, it's not the easiest, it's not the easiest journey. Um, I, I know I've said to my husband a couple of times, like, why, why did we have to, you know, draw this straw? Like, why, why did we, why couldn't we get an easy life? Why could we just plug in? Everything is great. But, you know, I, I, I really don't think there's anything as such as an easy life. Even the lives that look easy from the outside probably aren't. Um, so I've sort of started to embrace the fact that this is just what it is. Right. And, and I agree with you. And unfortunately, I think that society really doesn't know what to do. Um, I think, you know, for men and women, I think particularly women who are not mothers there, there's a a feeling of, of being a, a threat in some regard, you know, because it's just, this one doesn't completely follow the rules. I don't really know what to make of this person. And you know, and I think that's kind of destabilizing and, and there are, there is alienation. I don't want to pretend that there's not, you know, when you're sitting in a room with all these mothers and they're talking about motherly things and you, you know, um, you don't get to, to weigh in on it. But one thing that I will say is I feel like the part of me who wanted so desperately to be a mom there, she's still in me, but I think that humans have a really incredible way of surviving in the sense that we, your, your body will not let you handle more than you can handle. And the way, the reason I say that is because I feel like the part of myself who so desperately wanted to be a mom, I can't really access her as much as I used to, you know, she's in there, but it's, it's, again, it's sort of like, I feel like the castle walls have closed around her and that there's a little bit of a fortress between her and me to protect her you know, because it's too painful for her to be out in the world and to be feeling all those feelings that are so raw. And so as a result, I think that the person who's left, who's me, you know, is given the choice to look at the bright side of things and to look at the fact that I do have opportunities that a lot of other people with families don't. Like my husband and I decided this year for Christmas, we didn't want to deal with the family stuff. It was the first anniversary of our IVF not working. And so we said, you know what, we're just going to go somewhere by ourselves and go on, do Christmas our own way. And we went to Switzerland for Christmas and we stayed in an igloo and it was absolutely incredible. And it was an experience that we never could have, you know, afforded or logistically been able to arrange if we'd had children. And I don't want to just romanticize the thing that you always hear of like, Oh, you can just travel forever if you don't have kids, because that's silly. That's not, you don't build a life on that necessarily, but it can be a part of your life. And I think, you know, having another thing that is a passion is really important. I feel like for me personally, I think the difference between a lot of people who are um, without families who thrive and those who don't is having a component of service in your life, of having a cause that is bigger than you. Because I think that, you know, selfish pleasures like just spending money and traveling the world, that's fun and you should definitely do it. But I don't think you can build a life on that stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, I think um, one of the things that has made it easier to operate in a world that's full of parents and children is finding other causes and things that I care about to be able to give of myself to, um, because I think that that's where you get your real satisfaction. So, you know, whether it's again, contributing to this community, uniquely knitting, being a voice 
for folks who can't end up having that happy ending. You know, in my job, I work in nonprofits. I'm really passionate about the work that I get to do. Um, The fact that I do have the ability to stay a little bit late and to take on some things. I just got a really big promotion at work and I'm now doing a lot more good than I could have ever possibly done. And I think, you know, those things are not mutually exclusive. People with families can have, you know, careers too, but this is something I can really dive into. And, you know, I can, I can find these other things that make me feel passionate and make me feel like I can contributing and make me feel like I'm part of something. And that helps with the, um, the feeling of being an outsider too. If you find other ways that you can give and be part of a community, um, I think it builds your resiliency too. Yeah. I love that you said that, that like find a way to serve because really motherhood is serving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's not a lot sometimes getting stuff back and it's in a way you're just channeling your motherhood, Avon, right into something else. We're all here to mother something. Yes. What is it? Yes. That is so powerful to me. I just was like, my mind was just like blown as you were saying that of just like, yes, like you are just channeling your inner mother in another direction in a way that you serve. Exactly. There's so much divine energy. I think there's like a divine feminine energy. There's a divine masculine energy. And I think that sometimes people who are infertile, quote unquote, you know, you feel like you're this like biologically irrelevant old crone sitting (laughs) up on a hill somewhere, you know, but then to just embrace like, no, I have that energy. I have that mother earth energy. I have all that goddess stuff. It's just, I get to choose to put it toward animals and the environment and, you know, other things. But like, again, going back to sort of that fallow ground analogy, we're all here to grow something. What is it that we're here to grow? The, the thing that I'm going to walk away from this conversation with is we all have the ability to grow something. What are we going to grow? And I think that's, I think that's the important question. That is how you go from a life where you feel like, things aren't working out to, oh, this life is working out is, is thinking about what you're growing and what are you investing in? Obviously getting pregnant and having a child is like kind of takes over. I was like, oh, this is a huge thing that I'm going to invest in. But that same level of investment, that same energy, like you said, even like divine energy, that same power of presence that we bring to anything can be brought to whatever, a a service, a a friend, a friendship, leading something, um, being part of a movement, um, whatever it is, I think you can bring that same level of energy. It is true that when you go through infertility, it blinds your eyes and, and you think, I have, this is the only thing that I can put my energy towards. Right. And then now that it's gone, I have no purpose. Um, but I think as you grow and as you start to view the ground as plantable, maybe that's sort of soilable, like plantable, fertile, like, fertile. like fertile. This, yeah. this ground is fertile and it just depends on what I plant in it. Um, this didn't work out and I have to grieve and process that, but that doesn't mean that there, the ground is now, like you said, barren. It is just fallow. I love that. Thank you, Avon, for being here and talking to us. There was so many times where what you were saying, I literally put a face to someone that I went, I hope they listen to this. This would be so good for them. You know, should you just start naming names? I should. This person, <laughs> this person. No, I'll just slide it into their DMs. Like, I think this would be a good idea for you to listen to. So everything you say is so quotable, and that's what I love about it. Avon, if someone is like, well, Avon's the coolest person in the whole world, and I want to just know and be a part of what you're doing, is there any way that they can stay connected to you? 
Absolutely. Please do. Yes, that would be so exceptional. Um, So I would love to talk to anybody who feels like they need some support, need a lended hand, a lent. Anyone who needs support, needs a hand lent to them when they're in, you know, times of stress, because, you know, again, having gone through it, I know how dark it is. Remember, I was the roadkill under the the car there. So um, I would say the best place to find me is definitely on Instagram. It's um, at Avon Kane. That's A-V as in victory, E-N dot Kane, K-A-N-E. Um, please find me on Instagram, DM me. I used to be pretty active on my Instagram. I actually took a little bit of pause when I found out that we weren't going to be able to have children. So the page has been dark for a little bit, but I am getting back to posting again. And I am excited, you know, having lifted my head up from writing an entire memoir in just a couple of months here. Um, I'm hoping to be able to start posting some content there. And like I said, um, you know, hoping to get this book out into the world at some point. And if you'd like, like to, you know, stay in the loop about that, definitely connect with me on Instagram. And I would be happy to tell you all about it, um, as well as answer any questions that you have. And if I can just turn this back around one time, because you guys are so humble, I want to plug Uniquely Knitted, because honestly, this organization has absolutely changed my journey. Um, You guys are going to be featured prominently in the memoir. Um, There have been so many times when I was alone, I was down, I didn't know if I was going to be okay. And having your podcast, having your process groups, it was absolutely instrumental to me. It took me about two years of my four-year journey to realize that you guys existed. And when I did, I thought to myself like, my gosh, why did I just waste the last two years doing this by myself? Because the point is, you know, it's not just you guys, it's you guys and all the other incredible humans that you get to meet in the process groups. And I've really made some lifelong friends and, and just having people who get it and who understand and who even can just say, you know what? I hear you. I see you. Boy, that thing happened to you. That sounds terrible. You know, just having a space to process things and discuss things absolutely instrumental cannot hype it enough oh you're so sweet you're so so kind (laughs) yes and you've had some pretty rock star people including yourself in some in your process groups it's been it's been an honor it's been an honor to give you that space um and i knew i liked you the second i met you i was like me and her are gonna get along just fine (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Infertility Feelings Podcast, a show produced by the nonprofit Uniquely Knitted. This is your place to process, cry, and laugh about infertility. We are so grateful to all of our wonderful donors who support this work. If you would like to learn more about how we serve the community and support the work of Uniquely Knitted, we encourage you to check us out at uniquelyknitted.org. 